go ahead and um, we're going to transition into our sermon now. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, or your phone or device, tablet, whatever you are using there. Colossians chapter 3. Here's where we're going today. Last week, Tanner kicked off this new sermon series called Symphony, a Diverse Unity. Do you realize, I want you to think about a symphony, a symphony orchestra for a second. There in a full-sized orchestra, there are up to a, a hundred, sometimes maybe even more musicians. They're playing instruments from the four, um, four main groups. They've got um, the strings, the brass, the woodwind, and percussion, and there's over like 25 different instruments. We see diversity on display, but, but what makes a symphony orchestra so amazing is that all of these different people, individuals, sections, instruments come together, they work together to create something spectacular. It would not be the same if they all played the same instrument, would it? Would it all be the same if they played the same notes? No, what makes it glorious is that you've got diversity difference, and yet they all come together with a beautiful unity, a beautiful harmony in what they convey. They're different, and yet they all play in tune, and they play together. They know when to lead, and they know when to accompany. The balance of volume and tone in each section is astounding. And the church is supposed to be like this. Last week, Tanner showed us that this unity is all made possible by the death of Christ. You see, one of the most compelling dynamics of the church is how there can be such unity amidst all of this great diversity. And this is our motivation when you hear us say, maybe you've come to next, or on a Sunday morning you've heard us say, hey, we want to be a thumbprint of our community. Because we believe that's a reflection of the gospel. If somebody's in Medford, it ought to be reflected in our church. Everyone is welcome here. The gospel brings diversity because the gospel is for everyone without distinction. Now think about this diversity for a second. Think about all of the differences we bring to the table. Obviously, there's, there's ethnic diversity but there's also generational diversity. I mean, we've got kids in the church all the way up to our more seasoned in the church. We've got generational diversity. Think of all the differences that brings technologically wise, right? I mean, go talk to my brother Henry about, no, I'm just kidding. Hey, Henry, you are great with technology. But we got a generation of young ones that are growing up and like they don't know what it's like to not have technology. That brings opportunities and it brings opportunities opportunities for disunity. We've got single and married. There's educational diversity. There's different thinking styles and personalities. Come on. Like, we don't all have the same personality. We don't all think the same. There's socioeconomic diversity. There's workforce. We've got different jobs. I mean, I could keep going, right? What's my point? Differences can be a tool to display the beauty and greatness 
of God. I mean, I think the more diverse, and that's why like, when we peek in, like you go to Revelation, you peek into heaven, and you get this picture of all people from tribes, languages, nations, people. The beauty of God is maximized within the unity of all this kind of diversity. Now, we shouldn't idolize diversity. It's not like, like that, that's not our idol. Like, we don't force it. We say, whatever Medford is, that ought to be our church. This is what our community is. It ought to be reflected in our church. So it can be a great tool, but it can also be a barrier to, human, to unity and harmony. So, so here's what I'm going to do today. Later on in a future sermon, there's going to be a sermon highlighting our spiritual gifts. How in a lot of ways our differences come together and it strengthens the body. What I want to do today is I want to look at in particular how we can pursue harmony. How all of these differences don't bring disunity but we can pursue harmony amidst all of this diversity. Now, before we jump into the text, go with me to the orchestra again. What is it that brings the unity? Now, I'll be the first one to acknowledge, like, this is not my strength. This is what I bring to the tables. I need to go learn. You know, I'm, I'm, I played um, the trombone um, in uh, sixth grade, and I hated it. Um, that was the one year that I played it, and I got to the drums as quick as I could. But I, I, don't, I don't have a ton of knowledge here. But I do know this. In an orchestra, there's a conductor, right, that's striving to, 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 to bring all the parts together to unify it, and then everybody has all of the music that they're following that's, that's bringing you in. I mean, could you imagine everybody deciding, I'm going to play my instrument the way I want to play it? You know, there, there's a unity that they've got to work together to produce the glory that we see. And so here's what we're going to see today when we come to Colossians. It's that Jesus unifies the church. So go to Colossians 3 here. And... Uh, while primarily I'm going to look at verses 11 through 17, I'm going to start um, in verse 1. In Colossians 3, I know we're jumping into the middle of this book, um, but here's what happens. This is a major turning point in Colossians where Paul, based on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he's now calling them to live their lives in a manner pleasing and worthy to the Lord. That's this section. So he's getting really practical in how we live in light of the gospel. And this is what he writes. He says this, Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your, your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And God, we ask for your grace and through the work of your spirit, God, would you have your way in our lives? God, would you help us to hear with the, the, the ears and eyes of our hearts, help us to see and to respond to you today? God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now here's, I want to highlight a few things in the text, just big picture before we jump in. And the first thing I want us to highlight is, is this. Do you see the preeminence of Christ? Look back at the text here with me. Verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Verse 3, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life? He continues on down implicitly here in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're being renewed into the image of Christ. Verse 11, but Christ is all and in all. Going on down, verse 15, the peace of Christ. 16, the word of Christ. 17, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is clear. Like one of the things Paul's doing here is the preeminence of Christ. Now, what he's calling them to, and to us as we hear it, is to pursue a deeper knowledge of Christ. And this is echoing back to what Tanner challenged us with last week. If we don't grow deeper with Christ, we won't grow deeper in unity with each other because Jesus is the one who unifies. Why is this so important? Well, I want to highlight one other thing. Because we could be tempted to read this passage individualistically. Like, what I mean by that is like a solo Christian. Okay, I need to put off these things, and I need to put on these things. But John Stott says this. He says, if we do that, we miss the whole point of what's going on here. Paul's concern is for unity in the church. How do I know this? Look at verse 9. We hear this repeated one another phrase. Do not lie to one another. 
This is, this is a relational thing here. He goes on down. You see it again in verse 13. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Look at, um, look at verse 15 here. Let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts to which indeed you are called. In what? In one body. The point here is not just a bunch of solo Christians going and living in a particular kind of way. He's written this letter to the church. And so the way that there is unity within this church is that the preeminence of Christ is in all, and, is, and we see that here in verse 11. And he makes it explicit here in verse 11 where he says this. Here, there is not Greek and Jew. What's going on here? He's describing the whole of humanity. Everybody falls into the categories of either Greek or Jew. What has Jesus done? What did Tanner teach us last week? He, he's abolished that. And since there's no longer Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, it's pointless. It, doesn't, it has lost its significance. He continues on. He says, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. You could see a reference to um, barbarian in Romans 1.14, but here's the point. There are Greeks and there are barbarians, and barbarians are simply those who don't speak Greek. Again, he's saying that has been abolished. Scythian here represented the lowest kind of barbarian. Josephus even said this about them. They are little better than wild beasts. What's Paul's point? The barriers that once divided people from one another, racial, religious, cultural, and social, are abolished by the gospel. And then he gives this statement. But Christ is all and in all. Paul has only one hope for the unity in the church, and it's Christ and his reconciling power. And so here's my point today that we're going to spend the rest of the time just fleshing out. It's this. Pursue harmony by pursuing Christ in all of life. Pursue harmony by pursuing Christ and all of life. Here's what I want. I'm going to focus on 12 through 17 here. And what we have here is this passage highlights four specific ways that we pursue harmony by pursuing Christ and all of life. And the first one that we see in verses 12 through 14 is this. We are to pursue harmony by putting on the character of Christ. We have this imagery here in verse 12, which says, put on then. It takes us back to verse 5 where it says, put to death. You have this language of clothing here. Paul's using this imagery. And, and here's the point. When you, verse 1, were raised with Christ, when you were made alive, you now have a new identity. You are not defined by your old self. You are defined by who God is making you in Jesus. And so he says, now since you're a new self, before we get dressed, we got to take some things off. So you, you got to go take some things off. And now I'm not spending the majority of my time on that first section, but look what he says here to take off. He, he gives us a, a list of five in each verse five and verse eight. He says this, what do you put to death? He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness. And then in verse eight, he says, you put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Let me ask you this. If we don't put off those things, is it going to affect unity in the local church? Yes. He's telling them to put off the very things that would hinder any kind of harmony 
amongst one another. We cannot be in harmony if anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk is coming from our mouths. So we put those things off because they're not consistent with who we are now in Jesus. And the clothes that we put on, we're putting on the clothes of Christ. It's similar to last week when Tanner said, Jesus has died and brought peace. Now he says, now go live in peace. In other words, that's what he's saying here. You're now a new person. Go live like it. Go act like it. Go take your behaviors and they should be aligned and they should be conformed with this new image. And here's the cool thing that happens. When we put on the character of Christ, what people should see in the local church is Jesus. They should see us being transformed into the image of Christ. And so as they see us in the transformation, really they should see God. They should see the beauty and glory of God as individual followers of Christ are being transformed more and more into his image. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk through each of these characteristics, and I'll just be up front. Like, we could preach an entire sermon on each of these. You can thank me for not doing that. So let me just highlight a resource on the front end. One book I read a while back is a book called The Practice of Godliness by Jerry Bridges. He walks through a lot of these chapter by chapter. If you want a resource to really just jump in and dive a little bit more, grab this, The Practice of Godliness by Jerry Bridges. Now, given that, let's jump in here. What does he say? Verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We hear echoes here that the church now is the people of God. They are the the chosen, the holy, the the royal priesthood. It's the church now that's brought everybody together. He says, in light of what God has done, Here's what you're to put on. First of all, it says here, compassionate hearts. What is compassion? Compassion is a deep concern for the brokenness of others, along with a strong desire to alleviate that very brokenness. When we look at all the diversity and differences in the church, you know what comes together? a lot of our brokenness. I mean, if we are, are going to pursue harmony, we've got to do that. We've got to pray, God, you are compassionate, God. You are rich in mercy. Would you help me to think that way about the fellow members in my local church? Would you give me compassion? Now, as soon as we start walking through these, you know what's going to be clear and evident? What's the, what's the barrier to these? Me. I want somebody to be compassionate for me. I'm concerned about what everybody can do for me. But all of these characteristics relate to getting your eyes off of yourself and looking at what you can do for somebody else. I mean, this whole foster care highlight, what's the whole purpose? We're saying, God, get our eyes off of our own needs because there are needs in our city, kids, families. Break us for those. It's to be broken by the needs of somebody else. And if that's going to happen, John Chastain's got to die. I've got to move past what I want. And I've got to say, God, break me for the person that's sitting beside me. Break me for the person in my community group who's, who's experiencing all kind of brokenness. Break me for the person that I linger and mingle with in the lobby, and they're sharing me the brokenness. God, I want to have compassion for that. 
We should pursue compassionate hearts because this is the type of God that our God is. Second, kindness. This is a word in the Old Testament that oftentimes is connected with God's goodness. The goodness of God or the kindness of God. We see it in in the New Testament in Ephesians 2 um, where Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised and seated in the heavenly places so that for all of eternity God can display and show his, what? The riches of his kindness. It is the goodness and kindness of God. A lot of these we that are going to be mentioned here, we see also referred to in Galatians as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What is the opposite of kindness? I think it's described in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. You see, for us to pursue kindness... I've got, I've got to put some things off. And I've got to say, God, like, would you show me? Here's a prayer to pray. Because here's the problem with a lot of these. We, don't, we may not even see it. We may even be blind to it. And this is why at Redemption Hill, we say, don't just come on Sundays, but get in a small group and, and spend time with people. Because as you spend time with people and go deeper in community, you're going to see somebody display kindness and like, man, I don't see that in my life. God, I see somebody else stirring up kindness in my life. Or God uses them to highlight and show areas where I can grow. God, show me where I can put on kindness. We see the third one here, humility. Humility relates to how much I think of my own significance. Philippians 2, which is where I would encourage you. If you're like, you're like this, is, this is the one that you take away today, you're like, God, I need, I need to clothe myself increasingly with this one. Go spend some time in Philippians 2. I'll, I'll give you a few of those verses. It um, says this. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And if I were to continue on, and he would say, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus, and, and he would show the humility of Jesus that took him to death on a cross. You look at the humiliation there, and Jesus says, if you're claiming to be a follower of me, go live in humility. And as, as we start thinking about harmony in the local church and unity, there's all kinds of opportunities for me to think highly of myself. But when I think highly of myself, do you think that leads to harmony? No, if, if collectively we're putting each our, ourselves forward, there's gonna be, we're going to be clashing daily, often. But if we're collectively, man, I'm dying. What if this? God, would it be true of our church that daily we count others more significant than ourselves? What if that, you want to grow in this, pray, begin just praying that with me. God, today, would you show me a tangible way that I can count somebody else more significant than myself? And this flows from having a right understanding of who I am. I realize that apart from Jesus, I am nothing. 
I don't do these things because John Chastine is great. I die and I say, God, would you come in? Christ, would you come in? Would you be in me and all of me and, and you reign? It's, it, we come to see ourselves rightly. It helps us to see others for who they are. So we consider others more significant than ourselves. The fourth one here, meekness. Meekness is similar to gentleness, also a fruit of the Spirit. But don't confuse this with weakness. I like to think of meekness as power under control. Meekness or, or gentleness. Like think about that, that, that synonym there, gentleness. Like I could lash out, but that same very power underneath the control of Christ can come across as gentleness. God, who is it that I've been harsh with, that I've been rash with, that you want to cultivate gentleness in me? Fifth, we see here patience. Another way to think of patience is long-suffering. We endure rather than flipping out into rage or vengeance. You know what? I'm grateful for the patience of God. Romans 2.4 says this, But do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience, not knowing that they're meant to lead you to repentance? God has been patient with us. Does he destroy us when we disobey him? He has, he has the right, like, he could. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He has sent his son for us. He's been patient so that we would turn from that and come to him. And so here's what Paul's saying. Go, like, when you get a vision of who God is in Christ, the clearer that becomes, the deeper you go with Jesus, the deeper it's going to transform your relationships and bring unity with one another. Because you're going to see the patience of God and say, man, I've got to go to display that patience with somebody else. You're going to see the kindness of God. Okay, I've got to go display this kindness with somebody else. And on and on and on. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Notice how all these connect. We started with compassion. But really, it's not like, I mean, these all kind of intertwine together. So how do you forbear with somebody if you don't also grow in patience? Or kindness and gentleness. You see that? So, man, as we're growing in these, they're going to intersect with each other. Now, let me highlight a few things. First of all, here it says, bearing with another. It's a present tense verb. He's not, what, it, what this is highlighting is that it's not like a one-time thing, but there's just this continual practice within the church as we pursue harmony that we're going to be called to bear with one another. Hey, the reality is, is with all kind of differences, there's going to be conflict at times. What is a biblical response to conflict? Run and get out? No, we're committed. We're a body. We work. And so he says that there are times where God's going to call you just to forbear. What does it look like to forbear? This means that, that I am enduring, that I am persevering, that I'm laying down rights to even justice for a season because of love. And notice the motivation here in the gospel. Forgiving each other 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, as I highlighted earlier, all of these are characteristics of who God is or who Christ is. And so Paul goes right back to the gospel. This is what compels us. The reason we don't bear with other people and the reason we don't forgive is we forget who we are. But when I remember how much I've been forgiven, if this is an area you need to grow in, go read Matthew 18. Hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And he tells, he, he tells some parables there. And the point at the end of the parable, he says, the reason you don't forgive is a hardness of heart. But when you see all that God has forgiven you, how can you withhold forgiveness to somebody else? We can talk about this individually. We can talk about this in marriages. What brings, un what brings unity in marriages? We talk about this as, as a church. Maybe today, you, the Lord's saying, you know what? You've got to go forgive that person. You've been withholding. How do you know? Here's some, here's some clues somehow, sometimes to know, like, is there bitterness in your heart? Can you pray for this person? I mean, just think about this. Like, if there's somebody that's like, man, we're in the same church together, but I, I couldn't go grab a coffee with them. Maybe there's a clue that, man, there's something going on there. Let me give you three examples here. To forgive means we choose not to seek revenge. Second, to forgive means we determine to do good rather than evil. If you find yourself striving to do evil to somebody, hey, there's something wrong there. Because when God, like, God forgives, and then he is overpouring his goodness and kindness to us. What about this? To forgive means we pursue relationships and restoration. I want to linger here for a second. Sam Storm says this, true forgiveness longs to love again. Now here's the deal. When, I'm not saying relationships are always the same because trust is built over time. Okay? But if you want to pursue forgiveness that imitates the gospel, there ought to be a yearning to to pursue reconciliation. There ought to be a longing, as he says here, to love again, to, to see reconciliation and restoration. And, and that may be a clue to you. So your next step today is to say, who is the person that, that you need to be reconciled to? Paul's saying, man, the beauty of God is on display when this happens. Is it easy? No. But when we pursue Christ, this is what happens. And then the final one he says is this, it's love. Look at verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is love? Again, we take our cues from who? God. For God so loved that he gave. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and he sent his son. Love takes the initiative. Love sacrifices. Love gives. Love moves towards somebody. Jesus displays the ultimate love by laying down his life. What's Paul getting at when he says here that this is, um, binds everything together in perfect harmony? Here's the deal. I don't think, like, I know oftentimes we see love as elevated, like, and the greatest of these is love. Like, that's true. We can go to other scriptures and talk about that. But I think the point here 
is the binding is not like this is the number one of all these qualities that binds them together. This is what binds the community. And a couple of the commentaries I've been reading, that's where they land. In light of the focus here on unity within the church, here's what he's saying. The love, what's going to keep, what is strong enough to bind a diverse community together? It's love. So put on love. We pursue harmony by putting on the character of Christ. Second, and I'm going to go through these last three quicker. We pursue harmony by letting the peace of Christ rule. Verse 15, and everything, verse, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. First of all, let me just highlight what this is not. Oftentimes, um, we'll talk about, like God is just giving me peace as like referring to decisions. Like in Philippians 4, may the peace of God guard your mind and heart in Christ Jesus. Like that's true. But I don't think that's what he's getting at here. He's not talking about individually like that there's an inner peace on decisions or the leading of God. What he's talking about is the peace that Jesus brings and letting that rule in the congregation to bring reconciliation. John Stott puts it this way. Listen here. It is inconceivable that those who share with one another the benefits of the great peacemaking work of the cross should live with any hatred or contempt for each other in their hearts. Did you catch that? He's saying, what Tanner talked about last week, Jesus made peace on the cross. Well, if he's done that in the midst of a Christian community, how can I say Jesus has made peace with that person and I can't make peace with that person? Whoa. You, you, you guys see that now. It's a contradiction. How can we say, yeah, they've made peace with Jesus, but I ain't making peace with them? That is not consistent with the gospel. That's not letting Christ be all and in all. He's like, if you want to be selfish, let that, that'll just, yeah, let it go rampant. But if you really want to make much of Christ, here's what it's going to be. It's the peace of Christ that's going to rule. And you're going to see, because Jesus has made peace with that person, you're going to move towards that person and seek reconciliation and bring peace. So what does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule? It means to let Christ's peace hold sway in your lives as you relate to one another. Wow. Is anybody seeing the need for God's grace and helping this? Hey, it's okay. Thank you. I, I, my hand's there. It's not easy to be kind and gentle and, and seeking reconciliation. But here's the good news, that God makes this possible because you're a new person in Jesus. If you haven't stepped in, like if Jesus, if you haven't placed faith in him and become a new creature in him, that you, you can try all you want. It, you're not going to be able to. But by the power of God, he puts his spirit in you. you. God can do this in you as you humbly yield your life. And you say this, God, I can't, but you can. Would the peace of Christ reign? And then you have this little nugget here at the end. And he says, and be thankful. And we have this mention of thankfulness in the next three verses. So it's here. And then we see it again in verse 16 at the end of it with thankfulness. And then at the end of verse 17, giving thanks. This is one of the themes of the, of the whole letter of Colossians. 
What would be the opposite of thankfulness? Wouldn't it be like ungratefulness? Yeah, ungratefulness. In 2 Timothy 3.2, Paul describes the last days and he says this. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Of all things, what ought to describe the church and people in a church is that there ought to be just thankfulness. When we look around and we see our differences, we ought to say, God, thank you. When we look around and we see the differences, no, what, no matter what they are, thank you, Lord. You are, you are doing this. You make all things Good. All right, I got to keep moving. Third, pursue harmony by letting the word of Christ dwell. I am not going to do justice to this verse, but I'm going to give it my attempt here in a few minutes. Here's the deal. Paul could have just as easily said word of God. Let the word of God. But his point here is on the preeminence of Christ. And so he says, let the word of Christ dwell. What he's talking about here is referring to the message about Christ, the message that centers on Christ, namely the gospel. I mean, we say all of scripture is a testimony concerning Jesus Christ. This ought to dwell in you richly. Let me unpack a few things here. Dwell. If you were to go to a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, very similar. I'm not going to unpack it here, but he's going to say this. Instead of saying, let the word of Christ dwell, he's going to say, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirits. Be filled with the Spirit, singing and giving melody in your heart to God. There's a, there's a connection here between the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. We see a strong connection oftentimes in Scripture. This is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. We see Word and Spirit oftentimes together. But what does he mean here? For the Spirit of God to dwell in me, we want to say, I want the Word of Christ to dwell in and among us in abundance in the same way that the work of the Spirit does. Sam Storm says this about it. The truth about Jesus should be taught and known and obeyed in all its glory and beauty and richness. Let its intrinsic power and splendor do its work in you and for you. There is no way we will grow in unity and harmony as a church apart from the word of Christ being in rich abundance in us as individuals and among us as a church. Now, there's a, I believe there's a double reference here in, Ephesians, in Colossians 3, 16, where he says there, dwell in you. And what is in you? Well, the double reference that I believe he's referring to here is that it ought to be happening in you individually as Christians and among you as you gather together as a church. How do I know this? Because of what the rest of the verse continues to unpack, where he says this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual th- songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ individually ought to be dwelling richly. Like, can you say that? If you're here today and you're like, man, I am, I am struggling in unity and harmony, is the word of Christ dwelling? Is the peace of Christ ruling? Maybe like, one of the reasons we provide every month just a, a Bible reading plan, we attach it to the worship God, is that we want to encourage, let the word of Christ dwell. It ought to be dwelling in you individually, and it ought to be dwelling among, among us corporately. When you gather in your small group, the word of Christ would, should dwell. When you pray together, the word of Christ should dwell. When you're meeting together for coffee, let the word of Christ dwell. On Sunday mornings, we want to sing the word, pray the word, read the word, 
Preach the word, hear the word, respond to the word. It is the word of Christ that should be dwelling among us richly. And he fleshes this out in a couple of ways. One, he says, you teach and admonish. Let me ask you this, who's doing the teaching and admonishing? Is this Paul? No, this is the byproduct of the word of Christ dwelling in them. Now we know Paul's doing this, but he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you You're teaching and admonishing. The picture is of the church, not just a few people. As you read the word, as it dwells in you, go teach and admonish and let it overflow in song. One of the implications of this is that one of the means that the word of Christ is dwelling is that you're overflowing in song to God. The word should shape what we sing and it should fuel us to sing. And we ought to do all of this with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Finally, number four, pursue harmony by living all of life all for Christ. Pursue harmony by living all of life all for Christ. What should be clear by now is that following Jesus isn't just a Sunday thing. You won't find a more comprehensive verse in the Bible than Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, Can you fit any, is anything excluded? Is anything excluded in whatever you do? No. In whatever you do, in word or deed. The things that you say and the things that you do. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's the deal. Jesus just doesn't want your Sundays. He wants your life. He doesn't just want Christ on Sundays. He wants Christ in all and all, everything. There is not one square inch of your life that Jesus doesn't want to reign. Think about your speech for a second. What if every time you were to ask this question, is what I'm about to say a reflection that I'm a follower of Jesus? Is what I'm about to say a reflection that Christ died for me and he's worthy of glory and honor? What about our actions? Is what I'm about to do consistent with what Jesus would have me do? Does this action show that I'm a follower of Jesus? Does this action honor my Savior? Does this action display to the world that Jesus is the greatest treasure in my life? If we really ask these questions, how might it affect what we actually end up saying and doing? Jesus wants all of you. We should pursue harmony by pursuing Christ in all of life. As we wrap up, I want to share one final quote with you from a a theologian, Herman Bavink, who says this, Regeneration does not erase individuality, personality, or character, but sanctifies it and puts it at the service of God's name. The community of believers is the new humanity that bears within itself a wide range of variety and distinction and manifests the richest diversity in unity. If you don't get anything today, here's the point. God wants us to live in harmony. He wants us to live in unity. But I've got to die. And Christ has to reign. Christ has to become all. When Christ sanctifies, 
John Chastain. It will then be used. All of my weirdness and uniqueness and diversity. And all of us collectively for the glory of God. But Christ must reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we confess we need your grace and we need your help. And we need to work the work of your spirit to show us where are the clothes that we need to put off and where do we increasingly need to put the clothes of Christ on us. God, would you sanctify, would you make holy our individual uniqueness? Because God, we want Redemption Hill Church to be a local picture of the beautiful symphony orchestra the, the, the glory of God. So God, change us this week, not just individually, but corporately so that there's harmony. We want to give together. God, God, we pray you would give us grace this week to go and seek the reconciliation with the person that we've been fleeing reconciliation. God, we pray this week for your grace that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly, that among all other things that could dwell, TV, social media, continue, that the word of Christ, that it would dwell, that the peace of Christ would rule, that the name of Christ would be our aim. God, we need you. We need your help. And we ask for your grace in that. In Christ's name, amen.